The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. This is a great psalm. This is a marvelous, beautiful psalm. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is the song, if you know um, uh, American Pie album by Don McLean, yes. he took this psalm and made it into a song. So go listen to it on, uh, on a YouTube or something. Yes. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it, for there those who carried us away captive asked us of a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it. Raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. A little brutal at the end, but it shows the emotion of the psalmist. Okay, we are in Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 9. A man shall not live by bread alone. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that a man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. A correction I've made in previous sermons, and which I will make again in this one, is what the term live, as in that you may live, means. Joseph Benson, commenting on these verses, says it means comfortably and prosperously. For life, in scripture phrase, signifies more than bare life, namely happiness and prosperity. He then went on to cite various verses which have nothing to do with the context here, and he is not alone. It is the generally accepted commentary on such verses, but it is wrong. We have seen this several times in Deuteronomy, and it was painfully obvious when we evaluated Leviticus 18, verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which, if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. 
In fact, a right interpretation of that verse is so important that Paul uses it in both Romans 10 verse 5 and again in Galatians 3 verse 12. And so to live in this context means to not die. The meaning of that then has to be derived from the surrounding context. Our text first today comes from Romans 7. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Paul is obviously speaking of spiritual death here. He is speaking in general terms of those who have law and who violate that law, such as Adam and Eve. They were alive, the law was introduced, and they died. This is what Paul is referring to here in a general sense. Moses is speaking of physical life. Christ never died spiritually, having never violated the law, and yet he died physically. But that was on behalf of those who were spiritually dead. Because this is so, he came out of the tomb, proving that he had not violated the law. He could not stay dead. It was impossible, as Peter says in the book of Acts. Therefore, Moses is saying that to be obedient to the law means to live. If you have participated in more than five sermons in Deuteronomy, you have certainly heard this. And it is sure that you will hear it again and again and again. This is because it is important. How do we find life? The answer is dealt with once again in today's passage. It cannot be said enough, and so let us pay heed. For now, a small treat for you. A chiasm found by our friend Sergio about four years ago. He had actually forgotten that he had found it. I didn't. It will help us make our way through the chapter. Deuteronomy 8, 3 through 16, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God and in abundance keep his commandments, judgments, and statutes. And this is discovered by Sergio Voitenko on, uh, let's see here, I think it would be March 9th of 2016, although it might be uh, 3 September. Yeah, I don't know which way. You know, I was in the Air Force and I did it one way and then I went into the wastewater business and I did it another, so who knows what I typed there. But what he did is he laid it out and then I put it together for him. So uh, the outside verses are... Verse 3, humbled you and fed you with manna, nor did your fathers know. And then the other corresponding, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, and humbled you. And then B, garments did not wear out, foot didn't swell 40 years. And B, the Lord who led you through the great and terrible wilderness. C, keep the commandments of the Lord, walk in his ways for him. C, when you forget the Lord your God. D, you will lack nothing. D, when in abundance of everything. E, when you have eaten and are full. E, lest when you have eaten and are full. And then the anchor verses, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. Great things, such as chiasms, are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is, God led you all the way. It's verses 1 through 5. Verse 1. Every commandment, kal ha mitzvah, all the commandment. The words of this verse are appropriately divided in order to begin chapter 8, even though they fit with the thought of the previous chapter. Chapter 7 began with when the Lord your God brings you into the land to possess. That same thought is provided in the second clause of this verse, which opens chapter 8. After that opening thought of chapter 7, many thoughts concerning possessing the land were given, and then in the final verses, the Lord gave specific commands concerning the possession of the land to sum up the chapter. And there it is, Deuteronomy 7, and he will deliver their kings into your hand, and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. 
You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is a cursed thing. We did that last week. That's where we closed out. And because of this, one might think that verse 8, 1 should have closed out chapter 7. Indeed, some think that the division should have come after verse 8, 1. But by starting this chapter here, it calls to mind the previous words and then, then sets the tone for what lies ahead in the new direction that it will take in verse 8, 2. Despite being a new direction, possession of the land and the thought of obedience to the commandments is still a central theme of chapter 8. Understanding this, the words begin with all the commandment. Some translations say all the commandments with an S. This is incorrect. It is singular. Each individual commandment is united in thought as one body of law. The idea is that breaking one part of the commandment nullifies the entire commandment. It is what James refers to saying, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. By dividing the thought as all the commandments, it can give the incorrect idea that as long as everything comes out okay in the end, then missing the mark on the details is acceptable. It is not. Understanding that, Moses next says, verse 1 going on, which I command you today. The you is singular. It is the corporate body of Israel being told that obedience is required across the board. The phrase, which I command you today, is repeated again and again in Deuteronomy. It is saying that what Moses speaks out during the entire time of the giving of this book is included in the word today. Therefore, Moses isn't dividing up the portions of law into sections to be individually obeyed, but he is rather continuing on with a body of law that comprises each and every section into one unit. Each, which I command you today, simply adds on to the already impossible weight of law that began when Moses first opened his mouth to start conveying it. Despite this, the entire body of law is that which, verse 1 going on, you must be careful to observe. Tishmerun la'asot, you shall keep to observe. From this point on, the addressee goes from the singular you to the plural you all. In other words, all the commandment that I give you, Israel, today, you all shall keep to observe. Here, the importance of the difference between all the commandment and all the commandments is highlighted. The entire body of law, of which Moses spoke of until now, and of which he will add to now, and of which he will continue to add to throughout Deuteronomy, must be observed. And this is also something I'll stop right now and tell you if you are grading yourself on a bell curve, I'm better than this person or I'm better than that person, makes zero difference. If you've told one lie, you've broken the entire body of law. It doesn't matter if you've murdered somebody or if you <laughs> think of the most terrible thing you can think of from the law, you're just as guilty. The body of law is broken. What is not observed is not a simple slip of a law, but it becomes a transgression of the law. Guilt comes upon the entire body because of such a transgression, whether they know it or not. This takes the reader back to the book of Leviticus, where it said in Leviticus 4, Now if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty, 
When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. In that same chapter, there are offerings for individual sins, sins committed by a ruler, and even sins committed by the high priest. In the case of the high priest, it said, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. When the high priest failed to uphold a precept of the law, he brought guilt on all the people. This is because he was the mediator between God and them. In his guilt, the mediation was harmed. God saw his imperfection, and that imperfection was transferred to those he mediated for. In other words, right from that verse, we could say, thank God for Jesus Christ who never sinned. The importance of being free from sin, a precept already brought forth several times is, verse 1 going on, that you may live and multiply. To end purpose, you may live and multiply. The idea of living does not mean full and abundant life. It means not dying. The law's purpose was to give life. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Romans 7 verse 10, which is our text verse today. Obviously, this could not be understood by the people of Israel at the time, but it is a truth that is confirmed in the overall body of Scripture, both implicitly and explicitly. Israel, and indeed most readers of the Bible, look to Moses' words as a promise of full and abundant life and great multiplication of the people. But the typology clearly shows that it is referring to true life, meaning not dying and the greatness of reward. The word rabah, meaning greatness, can speak of many descendants, it can speak of much increase, a long length of time, a greatness of reward, and so on. The greatness of the reward is seen, for example, in the promise to Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Avram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Avram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. The intent of the law is life. Violation of the law then means death. The lesson we are repeatedly seeing in the book of Deuteronomy is that the law is given as an instrument of learning for the people of the world. Life was lost in Eden. Life was promised to come again. But it is not by law that life will come about, except in the fulfillment of it by the God-man. As Paul says, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The continual repetition of the same thoughts in sermon after sermon is to remind you that these things are so. This is what Moses is doing, and thus this is what we are to do, to contemplate the lesson of the law. Of this process, John Lang says, it is a less repeated than a continuous, this day enduring law-giving. The many pronouncements equal one law, and that one law is to be fully obeyed. The reward of perfect obedience to the law is next noted. Verse 1 going on, And go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. 
for Israel. The idea is that possession includes not just crossing the Jordan, but obtaining all of the promise from north to south and from east to west. However, the typology of Israel crossing the Jordan is seen in Christ. To cross the Jordan is to cross through Christ. To cross through Christ means possession, complete and finished possession. The singular you, which is then changed to the plural, is given to show Israel that as an obedient body, national salvation will result. Thus, they must get the relationship with Christ right first. Obedience to the law means all of the law. And only in coming to Christ can perfect obedience to the law then be imputed. Just note the order here. Observe, you may live and multiply and go in and possess. Keeping the law comes first, not last. One receives Christ's fulfillment of the law, then life and greatness comes, then comes possession, exactly the way we see in our salvation. And how evident that is from the next words. Verse 2, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. The words return to the second person singular, you, Israel. In this, Moses returns to the time of the wilderness wanderings. It is a time of receiving the law and then punishment for disobedience of the law. But despite their disobedience, the Lord continued to lead them, meaning keeping them as a people. In saying, the way, where is it? It says, in the way that the Lord your God led you. In saying the way, it is not referring to a particular path that they took, but how the Lord conducted them. In other words, during the entire time of punishment, he still gave them the manna, the water, relief from the poisonous snakes, and so on. Despite being consigned to die in the wilderness, they were also brought through the wilderness alive as a people. The covenant promises to them were upheld by the Lord despite their own covenant unfaithfulness. Those years of wandering are typical of the time after rejecting Jesus Christ. They have been punished as a people, and yet they have been given the grace of being kept as a people. Whether they acknowledge it or not, it is the Lord who has so kept them. That's the marvel of Israel today. If people can't see that, I can't help them. They were being punished as a group of people for rejecting Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is all the typology we're seeing right here from the book of Numbers on. And yet God has kept them as a people. The grace is there keeping them, and now he has put them back in the land to fulfill his covenant promises to them. The words of this clause are remembered by the psalmist. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endures forever. It's wonderful, isn't it? Everything just falls into place at the superior word. This leading them in the manner in which he did was for a set and good purpose. It was, verse 2 continues, to humble you and to test you. To end purpose, chasten you, to test you. The people had disobeyed. They had failed to go up into the land, a picture of receiving Jesus Christ in Numbers chapter 14. In their refusal, the Lord set about to chasten them as a means of testing. But the fact is, those 20 and above were set to die without entering Canaan. But they were provided the opportunity to look to the bronze serpent and live. Thus, while Israel collectively was punished, individuals could obtain life. Think of Israel over the past 2,000 years. They're apart from the covenant promises. They're dying around the world. God is keeping them as a people. And yet, if an individual Jew came out, outside the camp of Israel, and came to Jesus Christ, they would be saved. That's all the typology. We saw this already, and we're continuing to be reminded of it right now. Therefore, they would have passed the test. 
as a whole the chastenings were intended to eventually bring them israel them to the point where they would have voluntarily cross over the jordan picturing coming to god through jesus christ as a nation as this has not yet happened even though israel is even today in the land of canaan it is evident that living in the land is not the promise rather coming to christ and finding life through him is their chastening in other words is ongoing and it will continue until the day they call out to christ blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord understanding both the literal historical record and also the typological pictures moses continues verse 2 going on to know what was in your heart this is not for the lord to learn something that he did not know rather it is to bring to light what the heart conceals as charles ellicott says what god himself knows by omniscience he sometimes brings to light by evidence for the sake of his creatures this is for example what he did to king hezekiah in 2 chronicles 32 however regarding the ambassadors of the princes of babylon whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land god withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart in the case of israel Moses says it was to know, verse 2 going on, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Here Moses uses the same word, shamar, that he used in the previous verse. He told them they shall keep to observe all the commandment so that they could enter the land. Now he says the Lord tested them to see whether they would keep his commandments during the wanderings. They failed to do so, so he chastened them to test them. If they did not enter Canaan before because they did not believe, meaning have faith in the Lord, then their keeping his commandments cannot be what will bring them in this time either. Rather, it must come through faith. The chastening of Israel to test them concerning the keeping of his commandments then cannot be for granting them life. It is obviously a way of showing them that life is not possible through it, meaning the law. As Paul says, the law is only a tutor to lead people to Christ. John Lang at least partially picked up on this when he said, thus the pedagogical significance of the wilderness agrees well. The wanderings were intended to teach them what they otherwise could not learn. Everything we are seeing here must be taken in relation to the work of Jesus Christ. He came, he fulfilled the law, they rejected him, they were punished to test them concerning the law, they failed, are failing, and will fail to meet its demands. Only when they meet it through Christ's perfect obedience will they find life. That continues to be seen in the next words. Verse 3, so he humbled you, allowed you to hunger. This verse begins the chiasm which we saw at the introduction. The humbling mentioned here precedes the giving of the law. The Lord led Israel out of Egypt and purposefully waited until they were hungry before providing for them. In their hunger, they moaned against Moses and Aaron, but it wasn't they who resolved the matter. Rather, it was the Lord. He humbled them. He allowed them to hunger. Verse 3 continues, And fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. In their hunger, the Lord then did something completely unique by feeding them with ha-man, or the manna. In this, Moses reminds them that what was provided was completely unknown before or since. In saying the manna, it provides an emphasis. The word comes from ma, or what. Thus Moses calls it the whatness. It is completely set apart from anything else. 
the manner in which the manna came, the volume in which it was provided, the way that it degraded in a night for five days, but lasted over Friday and the Sabbath and so on. All of this was to separate the manna as something completely unique and holy of the Lord. And this is parallel to Christ, isn't it? The true manna. Though a man, there is a whatness about him that sets him completely apart from all others. The manner in which he came, the abundance in which he provided, the fact that he was crucified on a Friday and yet did not see corruption through the Sabbath and so on, all of it showed that he was the fulfillment of the pictures from Israel's past. This was so, verse 3 continues, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. In this, there are two articles that should be considered, the man and the bread. Also, the word by should read on or upon. The Lord is teaching the man, meaning the Adam in every man, that he shall not live on the bread alone. In providing the manna, the Lord was showing that what he spoke is what comes to pass. To eat, then, isn't what ultimately sustains a person. That which has come to pass, meaning anything that we see, feel, eat, smell, and so on, came to pass because the Lord spoke it into existence. The manna is a demonstration of this. It never existed. Nobody ever knew of it. And yet it appeared. As it came at the command of God, just as the universe came at his command, then the truth is that man lives not by bread that is the result of the command, but from the spoken word, meaning the command itself. As Moses says, verse 3 going on, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Ki al kao mutsa pi Yehovah yichyeh ha'adam. For upon all outgoing mouth, Yehovah lives the man. These are the words Christ Jesus spoke back to the tempter. The exchange said in Matthew 4, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus prevailed where Israel failed. They had the manna, and yet they continued to complain against the Lord. Jesus, understanding that the manna only existed because the word caused it to exist, conveyed to the tempter that the bread was only a part of God's proclamation. To default to commanding the stones to become bread in order to satisfy his personal hunger would be to not rely on all that proceeds from the mouth of God. But later we see that the manna was only a shadowy type of Christ himself, the word of God. From John 6, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. As Christ is the word of God, he is everything that is needed to have life. The bread of the world can sustain life, but it cannot make man live. God who gave the manna in the wilderness showed that he can sustain a man apart from the common food of man. As he can do this, then he can make man live, can he? How does the man live? He lives through Christ. Verse 4, your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. The obviously miraculous intent of the words here are all but destroyed by most commentators. I was fuming reading their commentaries during the preparation for this sermon. Many commentators try to diminish the miraculous by saying that the supplies for making clothes didn't run out or something stupidly similar to that. 
Others following Jewish fables say that the clothes of the children actually grew on them like a snail's shell would grow on a person. Neither of these matches the obvious nature of the words. Rather, the simple and understandable reading is exactly what happened. The clothes that people wore did not wear out. It would be ridiculous to speak of the manna in one verse, a unique and miraculous event, and then to speak of something plain and common like obtaining supplies to make more clothes. For adding surety of this, a complimentary verse is found in Deuteronomy 29, verse 5, where it says this, And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. The obvious nature for the change from feet swelling to sandals not wearing out is to show that both occurred and both were miraculous. Otherwise, if Moses only spoke of clothes and sandals, it might be assumed by those who came later that was just speaking of an ample supply of material always being available. Just like all of those commentators say, oh, this is nothing. This, Listen, God is the God of the miraculous. If he can give them manna for what? 603,550 men minus Levi plus all the women and children and the animals feeding them every single day for 40 years and he can't make their clothes continue to last on their body in a way that we can understand? I don't think so. In this verse, the words are still singular. The Lord is speaking to Israel collectively. Like the manna, it was a lesson concerning the Lord's faithfulness, even in Israel's time of punishment. There is one new and rare word in this verse, batsek. It is found only here and then again in Nehemiah 9 verse 21, where Nehemiah cites this verse. So you're not going to find it outside of this context. It is from a primitive root and it means maybe to swell or to blister. Their garments not wearing out and their feet not swelling or blistering was a clear demonstration to Israel that they were being sustained by the Lord as a people even as they were dying in the wilderness. The same lesson should be learned by Israel today if they will just think things through. They rejected Christ. They are under punishment of the curses of the law, and yet they are being sustained as a people. As miraculous as garments not wearing out and feet not swelling or blistering for 40 years, so is the miracle of Israel's continued existence over these past 2,000 years. If anybody in this world can't see that, I cannot understand their thinking. They're the only group of people on the planet that has ever been maintained the way that they are, that has had their ancient language resurrected, all of the things that have happened. The miracle of Israel is the miracle of God's attentive care of Israel. They rejected him. They have neglected his word, but he has neither rejected them nor neglected them. That this is the correct interpretation of this is found in the next words after a short poetic break. Many years you wandered after failing to believe, and during that time you fell in the wilderness. My promised blessing you did not receive, but you failed to consider how you got in that mess. For many generations you lived in the land, and there were times of want and times of prosperity. But through it all, you failed to understand that your state was a result of your treatment of me. And so for many years, you wandered after failing to believe. And during that time, you fell in a global wilderness. I held out nail-scarred hands to you that you failed to receive. And even today, you still won't consider how you got in that mess. Our second thought today, in which you will lack nothing. It's verses 5 through 9. Verse 5, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God 
chastens you. The context of their being provided the manna, their garments not wearing out and their feet not swelling is that it is done through chastening. The lesson of the chastened son is explained in the book of Hebrews. There, the author writes to Israel, specifically believing Jews, but he carefully shows how Israel, meaning the collective whole, the nation, experiences God's redemptive hand of blessing, cursing, judgment, salvation, and so on. Of this group, he says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves He chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, after it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What is clearly evident is that Israel under the chastening hand of the Lord during this dispensation is considered a son. They are being corrected by the Lord to teach them the lesson that they will eventually learn. This is all the more evident because the word Moses uses for chasten is the same word used three times in Leviticus 26 for the punishment Israel would receive during their rejection of him. So you can see that everything that's come upon them over the past 2,000 years is actually chastening. Despite them being under the curse, the Lord is leading them as a son as well. And yet, At the end of that passage, the Lord promises that he would remember the covenant that he made with their ancestors when he brought them out of Egypt. Their rejection of Christ is not the end of the story. With that understood, Moses turns again to the law. Verse 6, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. We have been talking about Israel and their relationship to the Lord the reason for their exile, which means rejecting Jesus Christ and God's faithfulness to them, even in their time of punishment. How can it be then that if their rejection of Christ was the reason for their exile, that Moses now again harps on them concerning keeping the commandments of the Lord? If Christ offers grace to these people, how does keeping the commandments of the law fit into that? It is, as we have seen time and time again already in Deuteronomy, because the law of Moses anticipates both the coming of Jesus Christ and the ending of the law. Hence, to keep the commandments of the Lord your God is to believe in Christ unto salvation. As it says in Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Everybody got that? They were asking at the time of John the Baptist, are you the prophet? And he said, no, they knew a prophet was coming. Is that verse a part of the law of Moses? This one right here? Yes, this is a part of the law of Moses. And therefore it is anticipating the coming of the prophet, meaning the Messiah. Therefore they must be obedient to that precept. So does everybody see that grace is involved in keeping the commandment? Okay, this is further anticipated by Jeremiah, a prophet under the Mosaic Covenant, who said that the Lord would cut a new 
covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Was Jeremiah a prophet under the law of Moses? Yes, and yet he's talking about something coming to replace the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Therefore, to obey the commandments of the Lord God is to come to Christ, the one who embodies, fulfilled, and annuls the Mosaic covenant. It is this act which will then bring Israel into the harmonious relationship with God. Theirs will finally be a heavenly promise of which crossing the Jordan into Canaan only anticipated. Verse 7, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Moses now describes what is almost an idyllic setting, and it is intentionally meant to be that way. The description of Eden and its garden is described no more beautifully than what Moses speaks of now. Further, Moses ensures that they know it is the Lord their God who brings them in. They rejected Canaan the first time by simply not believing the Lord. They will enter only through believing the Lord. It takes us back to verse 1. They were to observe so that they would live, receive the reward, and go in and possess. But if this is speaking only of Israel's entering Canaan, it makes no sense. Moses will speak out the words of the law. He's going to ascend Mount Nebo, and there he's going to die. There will be a period of mourning for him, and then Israel will enter Canaan. The obvious typology is that the observing of the command is to receive Christ by faith and then enter the promise. That will become as obvious as the nose on one's face in the book of Joshua. For now, the description of the land continues. It is, verse 7 going on, a land of brooks and waters. Eretz nachale mayim, land, wadis, water. This speaks of flowing water, typically of wadis that run during the times of rain. Verse 7 going on, of fountains and springs. Ayanot u tehomot, eyes and depths. The ayin, or literally I, speaks of a spring that issues forth water from the ground. The tehom, or depth, would be the much larger fountains that produce a river right at its issuing forth. It is where vast amounts of water gush forth to water the land. Verse 7 continues, that flow out of valleys and hills. Yotzeim babika ubahar flowings out in the valley and in the mountain. The meaning is that at any point in a given valley or mountain, there may be either or both of these flowing forth to water the land. And that then leads to other abundance. Verse 8, a land of wheat and barley. Eretz chita useora, land, wheat, and barley. There's promised both grains, the greater and the lesser. The wheat is for the standard human consumption, and the barley is both for the poor people and for cattle and horses. The story in Genesis 26 of Isaac reaping 100-fold would have been happily anticipated by those to whom it had been conveyed. The labors would be well rewarded for those who entered the promise. And because there are two crops, it means two harvests. The barley began around Passover, and the wheat began around Pentecost. The account of the supplies for King Solomon in 1 Kings 4, verse 22, shows the magnificent abundance the land could produce. Verse 8 continues, of vines and figs and pomegranates. Vegefen uteena ve'rimon, and vines, and figs, and pomegranates. The vines for grapes can be found in every single climate of Israel, from the wettest to the driest spots. Each produces its own special grape for its own particular use and taste. Today, we called Sergio before church, and we were talking to him. What are you doing? He's out driving around, and I'm following him on my iPad, and he's up in the north of Israel. He says, we're looking for good wine. And we went to one place, and it was 
too wet and too rocky, and he said the wine was too bitter, so we're going somewhere else because he's buying special wine for a special occasion. So they're driving all over Israel to get a special bottle of wine for somebody. I can't say what it is, but there you go. The fig is mentioned throughout the rest of the Old Testament and in almost every book. It is noted abundantly in the New Testament as well. The prominent use of it carries its own symbolic meaning, and it is not that of Israel. Everybody says the fig pictures Israel. That is incorrect. It is of a connection to God or its lack. This can be seen as one winds through the Bible and notes its many uses. And the pomegranate is derived from a word that signifies high or exalted. It gives a sense of mental maturity. It is seen much less in the Old Testament than the fig, but it is highlighted in the teeny-weeny little book called the Song of Solomon, where it is mentioned six times in that one book that's more than any other book in the Bible. Verse 8 going on, a land of olive oil and honey. Land, olive oil, and honey. Olive oil has multiple uses and much value. The land is filled with areas where it grows in abundance. Does everybody notice there's a bottle of olive oil on the shelf in the kitchen up high where nobody can get it? That's for my beard. I rub it in my beard. I didn't do it this morning because people were here, but it gets nice and shiny, and that's, that's what olive oil's for in Charlie Garrett's house. Again, the account of King Solomon and his dealing shows the immense amount of oil that was used and traded as a commodity. Honey signifies both abundance and health of the land. Where there is honey, it means bees have been productive. Cross-pollination occurs, the flowers will bloom, the fruit will come out, and the byproduct of honey can then be gathered. However, the term honey can mean more than just bee honey. It is also believed to extend to dates and even syrup made from grapes. The word comes from a root meaning to be gummy, so all of those are possible. After the first exile, the people had returned from Babylon and were still in troubled times in the land. However, the Lord spoke through Haggai of the blessing he would again pour out on the people. Speaking of all of these commodities except honey, he said this to them. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? And yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day I will bless you. This is what Moses' words now anticipate, a land of the Lord's blessing. And that only looks forward to the true land of promised blessing, which can only be realized for humanity through God's provision of Jesus Christ. For now, Moses continues, verse 9, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. Eretz asher lo be'miskenut tochal ba'lechem. Land which no in scarcity you will eat bread. Here's a word found only this once in the Bible, miskinut. It comes from misken, meaning poor. Thus, there will be a great abundance which anticipates wealth and prosperity, if rightly handled. Therefore, there will always be bread on the table and abundance for the family. It is a complete contrast to what the Lord promises when they reject him. From Leviticus 26, when I have cut off your supply of bread, 10 women shall bake your bread in one oven and they shall bring back your bread by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied again moses continues with a greater note of abundance verse 9 going on in which you will lack nothing certainly the words here extend to more than just what the land produces but to that which can be traded for in other words a great amount of trading is noted in the old testament so much so that there were commodities not available in the land that could be easily acquired 
In this, the people would have no lack at all. The ground would be so fertile and productive that there would be a superabundance by which to amass even greater wealth. And finally, of these promises of the abundance, Moses continues with, verse 9 going on, a land whose stones are iron. Some scholars see the term whose stones are iron as referring to basalt stones, meaning dark volcanic stones. There's no reason to accept this. Iron, even if in limited quantity, is noted throughout the Old Testament. The words simply mean that iron will be available to mine and to use by the general populace. And finally, verse 9 finishes with, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. U meha rareha paksov nechoshet. And out of whose hills you dig copper. Copper mines have been found in the Timna Valley in southern Israel. Copper mines have been found in the country surrounding Israel as well. As a note of correction, if your Bible says, thou mayest dig brass, the word brass, please underline that. Note that it is an error and correct it to read the word copper. Brass is an alloy which is produced by man. It is not found naturally. Copper is dug up and then it is combined with other metals to produce such alloys. The point of Moses' words is that the land promised to Israel was one of abundance and in which that abundance would keep the people from any lack at all. This is first and immediately speaking of the truth that Israel will prosper if they heed the Lord and are obedient to his law. It is, however, more fully anticipating the abundance that is found in Jesus Christ and what he promises his people. Israel was rarely obedient to the Lord. Read the Bible just one time and you'll know that's true. At times they prospered and at others they did not. The time of the law was a time for our learning. Israel was the object lesson, and we are the recipients of that. Road observance of the law without a heart for the Lord was as unacceptable to him as ignoring his law. The lesson is given through Israel in many ways, showing that we simply cannot do without one thing, and that is grace. In Christ's coming, that grace is offered. For Jew or Gentile alike, that offer comes by simply calling out to him and believing the gospel. For Israel as a nation, that will come when they call out to him collectively and submit to him. Next week, we will take what we have learned concerning the promises today, and we will again evaluate the warnings that come with such abundance and blessing. The back and forth lessons of Deuteronomy are necessary to have a full and complete understanding of what made life for Israel so difficult in the past millennia. In this, it will allow us as individuals to avoid such great pitfalls. And I'll tell you something, I was practicing next week's sermon, either yesterday or the day before, and it's a passage where it is mistranslated by pretty much, I think, every single translation. There might be one that got it right, but when I found what was being conveyed in the last verse of that, I'm pretty sure it's the last verse of that particular passage, I actually broke into tears, and I called Sergio, and I said, look at this. People make presuppositions about things, and they translate things, and it's not that the wording is incorrect, it's the thought behind the wording that's incorrect. But I'm telling you what, God is faithful when we are not faithful, and that is shown no more abundantly than in the people of Israel who have been protected and kept all of these many, many millennia despite themselves. And that is a lesson for each one of us because we all fail the Lord every single day. Whether we have come to him or not, we fail him. And when we come to him, we continue to fail him. Does anybody feel differently? Anybody want to feel that? No, I don't see any hands up. I got to tell you what, 
I know I fail him every single day, every single hour. Every thought that goes through my head is corrupt. I just cling to the Lord. It's all there is to do because there's nothing else for us. But he is faithful to us, and he has given us a promise that if you would simply believe in me and what I have done, I will lead you through this veil of woe and tears and pain and anxiety, and I will bring you to a place where you will no longer suffer these things, and it is guaranteed. It's not, I will do it until you screw up again, because every one of us would lose that today. It's, I will do it, and I will ensure that you are carried through to the end. So if you want to participate in what God is going to do with the redeemed of the earth, I would ask you to call on him today. Believe the gospel message and simply accept it by faith. And you will be a part of what God is going to do. I have no idea what's coming. I can't even guess. I mean, this universe is so big. It is so huge. And we're dealing with tinker toys here on earth and we're finding things constantly. Billions of human beings working together and we're finding all kinds of things. And yet there are trillions and trillions of planets and billions and billions of, of galaxies out there. And we have no idea the magnitude of what God has planned for us. Be a part of that. Please call on Jesus today. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 65. I took it from the NIV because the NIV did such a beautiful job of this particular psalm. I really love it. When I get to Psalm 65, I always put down whatever Bible I'm reading. I read the Psalm 65. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. Next week is Deuteronomy 8, 10 through 20. If you don't do it, you will be a complete clod. It's entitled, and you shall remember the Lord your God. Am I right? Anybody disagree with that? Okay, that'll be our 30th Deuteronomy sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you, but he also has expectations for you as he prepares you for your entrance into the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I've got a question for you. You can either have a Maserati to drive home today for a week, or I'll give you a ride with me on my YF-22. Okay? This is very easy. I mentioned the manna. It's mentioned twice in Deuteronomy 8. That's the only time it's mentioned in Deuteronomy, okay? What book and chapter was manna introduced into the Bible? Come on, this is very simple if you just think it through. Exodus? Not 10. Not one. Okay, let's, let's think this through. They went through the Red Sea. They had the Passover in 12 and 13, okay, and they had all the judgments, and they went through the Red Sea, and they sang the Song of Moses in chapter 15, right? And then they went into the wilderness, and they complained, and the Lord took care of them. Anybody want to guess now? Chapter 16. Everybody gets a ride on this YF-22 today. Okay. I told you it was easy. I knew you'd all get it. All right, we got a poem and then we'll take communion. Last week, remind me not to push the break button. It was backed up all the way and they're watching a little picture of us taking communion. Instead of me pushing, I got four buttons I can push here and I mess it up. So remind me to push the communion button, okay? All right. Man shall not live by bread alone. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. From these things you shall not swerve. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness, that terrible and trying spot, to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, 
whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, not a word shall he forego. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years, such it did not do. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you, and you are better off in the long run. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to fear him on the path that you trod. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of waters, just imagine the daffodils, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills. And yes, I went to the internet, I checked on Google to make sure they actually had daffodils in Israel before I typed that. <laughs> a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates too, a land of olive oil and honey, marvelous delights for you. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. The place is over the topper, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lesson of the chastened son. Thank you for Israel. We didn't have to participate in that, but we may be chastened as a nation. We may be chastened as a group of people. The world will certainly be chastened in the years ahead, but it is for a divine purpose, is to punish them for rejecting you and to bring some through into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, where you will again show grace and favor to this world. And the redeemed of the Lord will be taken out before that happens. We know this is true because the Bible has laid that out very clearly. And so we thank you for that promise that we have, that we hold, that we possess. We thank you that we are just waiting on that day whenever it will be. And help us to be patient in the meantime and also to do what is right and to get out and speak the word of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear it. Help us to be responsible in this. And may it be so to your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.